The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, December 21st. Today, White House fights on multiple fronts. The rise and fall of Michael Flynn and a medical mystery in Uganda. I am asking Congress to defend the border of our nation for a tiny fraction, tiny fraction of the cost. The government may shut down because of a fight over border wall funding. Walls work. Whether we like it or not, they work better than anything. President Trump, you will not get your wall. Abandon your shutdown strategy. While all of that's been happening, there's been other chaos in the Trump administration. On Wednesday, Trump surprised everyone, including his own party, and announced that he was pulling U.S. troops out of Syria. And we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them, and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land, and now it's time for our troops to come back home. In reaction to that, uh, the Defense Secretary, Jim Mattis, uh, submitted his resignation in protest in a pretty scathing letter. White House reporter Josh Dossie has been covering this chaotic week. And if something crazy happens while we're doing this, I may have to. Yeah, and this seems like it's definitely been a crazy day. On Friday afternoon, Josh and the other political reporters were running around the newsroom, on high alert, watching the countdown clocks tick toward midnight. We have seen uh, lots of drama, lots of uh, sound and fury. How much it signifies to this point, I don't think we know, uh, but that's what we're really trying to decipher today. So even in like the usual scale of chaos, it seems like it's been another level. What's different here? is that Jim Mattis, who was seen as probably the most steadying, one of the most steadying figures in the cabinet, uh, issued a pretty sharp repudiation of the president, uh, wrote a lengthy letter that he circulated to the Pentagon, circulated in the White House, and said, essentially, here are the American traditional values that we agree with. We want to counter Russia and China. Uh, They're not our friends. They're our foes. We believe in allies. We believe in keeping troops in key countries. Uh, the president does not agree with that, according to his letter, he says, and the president deserves someone who agrees with him. When you read the letter closely, what's most striking about it is that he, he articulates all of these things he agrees with that we've had basically in this country for 50 years of pretty orthodox foreign policy. And then he says, you deserve someone who agrees with you. Uh, basically is, saying that, which like, is basically saying President Trump does not agree with these, you know, how we do things when it comes to di- diplomacy and global and affairs. Really, the first cabinet official or key officer who has left the administration publicly questioning the president like that. And what was the president's response to that? Well, so far, the president has not torched him on Twitter, has not uh, 
gone after him. But for months, the president has criticized Mattis, saying that he was essentially a Democrat, that he wanted him to stay in all these wars that he didn't want to stay in. He, when, he took him, when he took office, he famously called him Mad Dog. And in meetings recently, the president started calling him Moderate Dog, <laughs> which you can imagine in the president's mind is not a compliment. So the president had, had really grown tired of Mattis anyway, but the way he resigned is sure to spark... Uh, some some palpable frustrations. I mean, what you saw last night, too, was lots of GOP senators, Marco Rubio, uh, others who normally are in lockstep with the president, or at least when they're not, do not go on the record and criticize him. Uh, we're pretty vehement about this one. Let's talk about the shutdown. So where are we at right now? And what... But what time is it? <laughs> <laughs> That's a real question, right? Right. Uh, essentially, the president and the White House told Mitch McConnell earlier in this week, pass a spending bill, pass a short-term spending bill, we'll sign it, we want to avoid a shutdown. Then we had about 48 hours where uh, all of the president's favorite conservative commentators, ideological lawmakers, everyone close to him were really critical. On TV, he was watching nonstop, it was very critical. And he essentially decided he thinks a shutdown will be now good politically for him. Uh, if he doesn't get $5 billion for the border wall, which obviously Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are not going to hand him $5 billion for the border wall. It would be, they're just not going to do that. And he's not worried about like the political blowback from, from shutting down the government, the way that it's made other presidents look bad? The president's calculation is, this is a play that goes straight to his base. He's not playing to broaden his base here. He's not trying to get more supporters. He is trying to keep the supporters he already has fired up, enthusiastic about him, believing that he's something that's special and different. And in his mind, shutting down the government shows or or going to this ultimate brinksmanship, it's hard to know if it'll shut down because it's not midnight yet, but going to his ultimate brinksmanship makes him look like a tough fighter. And that's how he always wants to cast himself as the outsider who's going against Congress, who's fighting, who, even if it's not clear that it's a strategy in the fight, this time there's not a strategy. What the president really wants to happen is not going to happen. But the the journey, what is a, a song by Miley Cyrus, The Climb? I think here it's like about the climb, right? Like the president thinks that the journey is what's getting him somewhere. So we're going on this kind of rocky journey. If there is a shutdown, what, what will happen? A lot of the government will stay open. And then in Washington, folks who are deemed essential will be kept open. Uh, but a number of agencies, uh, at least part of their functions, will close. People will not be paid for some time uh, right around Christmas, uh, which is obviously could be deleterious politically. If they do come up with an agreement, what happens after that? Well, the dynamics change, obviously, in January. Nancy Pelosi takes over as a House of Representatives uh, speaker. She has her different conference. She obviously sees the government far differently than the president does. Uh, At that point, you have a different government. And that is one key reason why so many of the president's allies are telling him he's got to do the shutdown now. Because they're saying you have a little leverage now. You have even less leverage in, in January. I mean, the president is going to have divided government, small majority in the Senate that, he can, that the Republicans control, a big gap in the House where they have no power there. So uh, I think he sees it as a now or never kind of situation. And if the shutdown does start at midnight tonight, is the expectation that it would continue you know, through the holiday break until Congress is back in session next year? 
Well, no one knows, right? But every, I mean, most lawmakers are going to go home to their families on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day unless something changes. Uh, if you're the Democrats and you're not willing to give him anything now, why do you change your mind in two days? If you're the president and you're not willing to take what it is now, why do you change your mind in two days? I mean, it's is it theoretical? Is it feasible? Is it possible that maybe someone could give? Sure, but it doesn't look very likely right now. As of late Friday afternoon, when we hit publish on this episode, there was still no deal to avoid a government shutdown. Earlier this week, if you can think back to earlier this week, Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, showed up to a federal court hearing. He was supposed to be sentenced for lying to the FBI about his interactions with Russia, But nothing went the way that people expected, and the judge ultimately chose to delay the sentencing. So Michael Flynn is still in trouble, still could face prison time. But at the moment, the court, at least, would like to see him cooperate more with the government, see how that plays out, and see where the federal investigation is come March. Mark Fisher is a senior editor for The Post, who was following along during the proceedings. And what really stuck out to him about that hearing was this one moment when the judge in the courtroom was talking to Flynn, who had already pleaded guilty already said, yes, I lied to the FBI, and I knew that what I was doing was wrong. And he said, you know, what you've done here is perhaps treasonous. The judge literally points to an American flag in the courtroom. He talks about Flynn's crimes, and then he says, quote, that undermines everything this flag over here stands for. Arguably, you sold your country out. This three-star army general previously respected across the political spectrum, was now being publicly berated in court for betraying his country. That dramatic shift is exactly why Mark Fisher has spent the last several months interviewing more than two dozen of Flynn's friends and former colleagues to answer this question. How did Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, this venerated military leader, end up facing potential prison time and become known as this, like, down-and-out Trump cheerleader? Lock her up, lock her up. So there are several schools of thought about what happened to Michael Flynn. And you know why? And you know why? You know why we're saying that? We're saying that because if I, a guy who knows this business, if I did a tenth, a tenth of what she did, I would be in jail today. There are people who say he was taken under the wing of his son, Michael Jr., who was very much given to conspiracy theories and uh, was out there on social media hawking all kinds of anti-Obama stuff. That's one theory. Another theory is that Michael Flynn was simply enraged by the fact that he had done everything right, gotten to the very top, and then had the rug pulled out from under him been fired by, he blamed President Obama, but it was actually people under him. And that rage consumed him, and he sort of fell into this Breitbart, Alex Jones world of of wacky ideas. And then there's yet a third theory that he had always had extreme views, and he had just managed to suppress them to conform to the military's expectations. 
I asked Mark to take us back in time and remind us of who Michael Flynn was before he was chanting, lock her up at the Republican National Convention, before he was hired and fired as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency under President Obama. Michael Flynn had spent 33 years in the Army as a very accomplished, storied officer who had been someone who not only led in the military, but he continued to do intelligence work himself. The most accomplished officers of the last generation not only respected Michael Flynn, but wanted him around them and, and gave him important positions in Washington. And so when he finally did rise to the very top and came back to run the Defense Intelligence Agency, I think a lot of people were shocked by how poorly he did there and how he kind of imploded. Tell me more about his time as the head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. From the start, uh, as soon as he got there, things did not go well. He was kind of a bull in a china shop, and he didn't really understand the bureaucracy, and he was uh, just miffing people from the start, in addition to which he became this purveyor of what people around him started to call Flynn facts. Flynn facts were these weird conspiracy theories, and he was building policy around some of these ideas. And, you know, he, he said, well, we, we shouldn't be talking to Iran at all because they've killed more people than anyone else, and, uh, including al-Qaeda or ISIS. And, you know, these things were just not true. So he he's fired from the Obama administration. He's fired as head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. What does he decide to do next? He wanted to make some money and he wanted to tell people about his sort of evolving worldview. And so he signed up with the Speaker's Bureau to go out and talk about leadership and about the failures of the Obama administration, about his own views about Islam and about the threat that Iran poses to the United States. And he became kind of a mainstay on that right wing circuit where he was running into not only Donald Trump, but a lot of the other folks around Trump. When did he kind of get linked up to Donald Trump's campaign and become more involved in that? In mid-2015, he had uh, his first meeting ever with Donald Trump. And he said that within a matter of minutes, he connected with Trump. He, uh, he said he went in very skeptical. And he said within a couple of minutes, he determined that Trump was absolutely committed to the same things he was committed to. And once the field narrowed and it was all about Donald Trump, Michael Flynn was all in. And then came this fateful speech before the Republican National Convention, uh, where Michael Flynn kind of came out as part of this Trump movement in, in a really big way. We, we do not need a reckless president who believes she is above the law. And he gets kind of taken along and moved starts moment. moved by the moment. And he starts leading them in the chant of lock her up, lock her up. Lock her up. That's right. Get, that's right. Lock her up. And to his colleagues, to the people who had been his superiors in the military, this was a shocking moment. They use phrases like, well, he went off the rails. He's become unhinged. I mean, this is like a serious break, not only with tradition, but with everything that they'd known and believed about Michael Flynn. And this is also around the same time that he started to get kind of pulled into the orbit of Russia, right? Yeah. So as part of his attempt to create a new career and go out and speak and get paid for it, he 
accepted an invitation from RT, the propaganda arm of the Kremlin, uh, to go to Moscow and uh, speak and visit and go to a dinner where he ended up being seated next to Vladimir Putin. This is not a good look for an American uh, military leader, even retired. And he got a lot of criticism for this. And he says, well, he never knew he was going to be seated next to Putin, but he didn't exactly uh, step up and walk away. In fact, he took part in a standing ovation for Vladimir Putin. That said, as Flynn contends, he has always been very critical of Putin and very critical of Russia, much more so than Donald Trump. It would be wrong to paint Michael Flynn as some sort of sympathizer. But nonetheless, he kind of was, whether it was entrapped or naive or whatever it was that got him there, he was there. So this happened in 2015. And then in 2016, Flynn is on the campaign trail with with Donald Trump. Um, obviously, Trump wins. And then Flynn is appointed national security advisor. This is why we are absolutely committed to leading a national security council with our president-elect's vision to make America great again. That has as its primary mission, its primary mission, the safety of the American people and the security of our nation. What happens after that? Michael Flynn lasted all of 23 days as national security advisor. It's not a, not a good part of his career. What happened there is all of what he'd been doing and saying kind of caught up with him. It caught up with him in the form of allegations that he had lied not only to FBI agents but to Vice President Pence about his contacts, about Flynn's contacts with the Russian ambassador before taking office. So at a time when the Obama administration is still in charge, Michael Flynn met with the Russian ambassador to the United States and they discussed sanctions. They discussed the U.S. sanctions against Russia and the possibility that the Trump administration, when they came into office, might lift those sanctions. The law is clear on this. We have one administration at a time. It is actually illegal for an American citizen to conduct foreign policy while there's another administration that's in charge of that. Even if it's just a discussion, even if it's just sort of a simple chat about here's what we might think about doing in a few months? That's the law. That's the tradition. He broke both. He did so knowingly. He's admitted that. He pleaded guilty. And when did he lie about it? So he lied about it to FBI agents who very early in the first weeks of the Trump administration were looking into you know, what we now think of as the Mueller investigation, that uh, entire uh, set of questions about the 2016 campaign. Uh, and he lied to Vice President Pence because this was becoming a big public issue. Pence confronted him about this and Flynn said, don't worry, there's nothing there. I didn't do anything. And then Pence went out there and repeated that. And so he made the vice president look like a fool. Mike Flynn is a fine person. And I asked for his resignation. He respectfully gave it. He is a man who uh, there was a certain amount of information given to Vice President Pence, who's with us today. And I was not happy with the way that information was given. He lasted all of 23 days in the job. Uh, and this is yet another humiliation that, that fueled this uh, sense that he has that uh, the country's gone off the rails. So what has life looked like for Michael Flynn in the almost two years since he was fired after 23 days as national security advisor? 
Michael Flynn has been very cooperative. He has had 19 interviews with Mueller's investigators, uh, more than 60 hours of talking to them. So this is not someone who is just pro forma pleading guilty to get out of this. This is someone who is fully cooperating. What do you think that the arc of Michael Flynn has to say about the Trump White House or about, you know, where we are politically as a country? What I drew from looking at Michael Flynn is it's much like the voters who think of themselves as the deplorables. There's a sense of not being respected, of the world changing around them in painful ways, of thinking that if they don't do something, as Donald Trump always says, we're going to lose our country. And so this is heartfelt and this is kind of deeply thought through in a way even if it is this extreme pivot in people's lives. And so I think you have to take him at face value and take him at his word that that he's actually come to believe these things, whether others make fun of them as Flynn facts or conspiracy theories or not, um, and that he has come to accept what he sees on Alex Jones, on Breitbart, from his son on social media as fact. And if you accept all of that worldview as fact, then his actions begin to make some sense. Mark Fisher is a senior editor for The Post. And now one more thing. A medical mystery in a bat cave. Over the last decade, Uganda has seen an uptick in the number of people who've contracted a virus called Marburg. It kills nine out of 10 people who are infected. It's a viral hemorrhagic fever, and you could basically bleed to death, and it has symptoms very similar to Ebola. That's Lena Sun, who covers infectious diseases for The Post. She says that the problem with Marburg was that no one knew how it was transmitted. At first, people were blaming the African green monkeys. But eventually, health officials realized that even though the monkeys were carrying the Marburg virus, they weren't actually the source. Instead, the disease was coming from fruit bats. They think that maybe the monkeys ate some fruit that the bats had nibbled on because the virus is in the bat's saliva. And the way these bats work is they are very picky. They only want the ripest fruit. So they will go and nibble on a mango, and if it doesn't taste good, they'll spit it out. Here comes the monkey, sees a ripe mango, eats the mango, gets infected with Marburg. And it turns out that people are just as picky as monkeys when it comes to mangoes. So they wound up eating the same fruits that the bats had infected. The outbreak got so bad that earlier this year, officials from the CDC headed to the jungles of Uganda. And Lino went along with them. They went into a large bat cave where scientists think that some of the infections began. When they got there, the scientists placed tiny trackers on the backs of the fruit bats. They wanted to see where and how far the bats travel to try to understand how to limit the spread of the disease. Lena says that the trackers are an important way to make sure that it doesn't become a global pandemic. A virus can basically get on the plane and be here in 36 hours. 
So the idea that, oh, these nasty diseases are only over there is wrong and foolhardy. Lena Sun is a health reporter for The Post. On Thursday, she reported that a new outbreak of Marburg has been found in bats in Sierra Leone. That's it for Post Reports. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rina Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon, who also does our sound design and theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The Post Reports podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. At T. Rowe Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you.